Welcome to the Women of Wild podcast, where we explore what it means to be a woman. We will be discussing real life challenges from being a daughter, a wife, a mother, a single mom, and beyond. We're two friends living very different lives. One is married with all girls. The other is divorced with all boys. We're perfect bookends to speak from opposite perspectives on all the things. Our mission is to search out the heart of a woman and to pour into you wherever you are with real life wisdom, actionable steps, and application of the topics we discuss to continue our self-development into a wild woman. That is a woman of wisdom, impact, love, and dignity. So let's go. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm going to introduce and reintroduce Sally as our expert in the field of trauma therapy. She has uh, training in trauma recovery from what is called STAR, and we'll get into the definition of that, but she's got a great quote from C.S. Lewis that says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. And so today I'm just going to hand over the microphone to Sally and she's going to explain to us what the STAR therapy approach is to trauma healing and what that blueprint looks like. And then what we're going to do is give you a sample of what coaching might look like. And I will be the star student in that scenario. So take it over, Sally. All right. Thank you. I had a training that was in star therapy by Denise Colson. She created this method or developed it, I guess I would say. And she took, um, kind of the best of both worlds of recovery and psychology and therapy and created this system that really has a great outcome for people who have suffered from trauma in their life. And really any kind of, um, we all have some sort of past trauma, whether it's big or small. We talk about some big T traumas and little T traumas. It's not necessarily always the size of the event that happened to us, but how we processed it at the time. So I want to give you the, the definition that STAR has for trauma is any event from outside your power, control, or conscious choice, which contradicts your identity to the point that it raises your stress to toxic levels and creates unacceptable losses. So trauma is a it's a disconnection this thing is not something that should happen we have that ideal in our minds of what life should look like and i know we don't like to use the word should but we still have that idea and when things go against that you know there's an idea of how our parents should treat us you know, they, we should be safe with them. They should be trustworthy. And when something contradicts that, it, our brains can have a trauma response. Like an automatic expectation that's flipped on its head. Yes, especially like if there's some kind of abuse. That's not supposed to happen. Things like that. I have several friends who are adopted. And the truth is everyone who's been adopted 
has experienced trauma as an infant or whatever age they were given up because that's just not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't mean you weren't placed into a loving family. Things Maybe you were in a better situation, but it's still, it's still a, a bit of trauma that the body has to process. And so things like that are out of your control. You have no control over things like that, but it does have an experience on the brain that creates changes in the brain that um, causes us later in life at the time, especially as children, our body does the best it can to cope with whatever happens. But as we grow into adulthood, a lot of times those coping strategies are not helpful. (laughs) They tend to hurt our relationships and hurt us um, more than they help us. And so I, as I was going through the training and I, as I talk to my clients, I tell them, nobody really signs up for this because they want to do it. It's not that kind of a, a therapy. It's they sign up because they have to do it. They're tired of living just a life that is missing out on joy and some of the things that they, they know there's more mm-hmm. and they haven't been able to find it. And so that's, it's not, a fun process, but it's people, sometimes you get to that place where you're like, okay, I just don't want to live like this anymore. I'm tired of being defeated, always doing these same things over and over again and not getting a better result. That's the definition of insanity. And I think all of us at different times in our life get caught up in that cycle. And a lot of times we don't know how to get off that, that wheel. (laughs) Yeah, what is that saying that we generally are not going to make any changes until remaining the same is more unbearable than the fear of the change? Yeah. Something like that. Pain. The pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of doing something different. Yeah. And pain is a good motivator. (laughs) Unfortunately, I, I certainly am one that has to be in a lot of pain before I'm willing to make a move. You know, we talked about the Enneagram. I'm a nine. I am not going to do anything (laughs) until I have to. That's interesting. I'm not sure how it plays out with my Enneagram number being a seven, but I tend to lean into pain as, uh, but it's more productive pain, like um, in working out and pushing through and pushing past the pain um, Mm. to, to feel alive. So I actually press into pain as as a way to kind of center myself and ground myself. (laughs) I'm the opposite. I, and I was reading about this this morning. This is a little off topic, but we'll go here for a second. Um, With the nine, it was talking about my number one sort of, I don't know if you want to call it sin or like thing that I struggle with is um, sloth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that is, it's not just being lazy. It's, avoiding activity or things in order to numb. And so you can numb through physical activity sometimes, but it's um, that's usually not my go-to so much. <laughs> Mine would be more like watching TV or just doing mindless activities just to shut my brain down. But that's um, my way of coping that, again, is a waste of time and not <laughs> helpful. Yeah, that's so interesting. So 
you know, most of us will try to numb out. That's how we try to just get a little bit of relief. And so you do that in lower activity things. And I do that in high activity things, but the end result that we're going for is the same thing is to either numb out or forget or avoid or that peace relief, that temporary peace that we're looking for. One of the other things that was mentioned that really hit me, you know, how you feel exposed sometimes when you learn about this stuff Yes, is taking more, another class. And I thought, oh, I'm so guilty of that to avoid like, doing the work that I know I'm called to do, I'm like, well, I just need to learn one more thing. <laughs> I need to take this class. I need to do this thing. There's always something else I want to be more prepared. And really, it's not about being more prepared. It's about doing the work. But that's my other way of avoiding actually doing the things I need to do. Yeah, it's the same, but it's a it's a sense of feeling productive because you're doing something, but it's not productive in the sense that it's not actually taking action to get you towards your goals. You're just continually intaking data instead of output. You don't have any output. Yeah, that's me for sure. I'm a complete mm-hmm. online course junkie. I don't, I'm in one right now. <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> No, I agree too. I I love learning, but I also need to use what I've learned in a productive way. But again, that's my way of avoiding. And I go back to that, you know, our identity is often, um, or this trauma affects kind of the way we then grow into adults and how we develop our just personalities, the way we do things, and for whatever reason, like I didn't have a lot of, um, I would, I did not have a lot of big T traumas growing up. We moved around a lot and moving is also considered trauma, especially, you know, to having to change schools and make new friends and that kind of thing is difficult. And my way of coping with that as a child was just to become very codependent and find the first friend that would talk to me, you know, just, I'd always pick up these needy friends <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, but I didn't care. I just wanted to have friends. I had to make new friends every year because we kept moving, and um, so I didn't know how to make necessarily the healthy friends until I was older, like thirty <laughs> older. <laughs> well, it's hard as a young person to recognize patterns of behavior. I mean, that's you know, it takes it takes a minute to to be able to look back and have a history to mm-hmm. see the pattern. And it takes having someone pointed out, like, I really, when I, that was about the age I was when I went into Al-Anon, and that was the first time anybody pointed out my unhealthy behavior. I thought I was normal, you know, <laughs> like, I thought I was healthy because my behavior didn't look unhealthy necessarily. Now it would to me because I know more, but I wasn't over drinking or doing drugs or none of those big things that like are kind of obviously unhealthy (laughs) to people right it was more relationally and um you know I thought I was a nice person serving other people doing things for other people I didn't know that could be unhealthy I thought I was just nice but those are those tendencies in me developed through I believe some of the moving around and having to make new friends and family dynamics and stuff like that. Um, 
again, I didn't know till I was older, but my mom struggled with codependency. So I learned a lot of that from her and, um, and she got help. I don't know when I was in high school or college, maybe college. Um, you know, she's certainly grown a lot since then, but I was almost out of the house at that point. So I just learned a lot of that behavior too. And she can talk about, she, I realized later, you know, she can tell me about friends that she had that were too needy. <laughs> and so we pass these things down. And and I can see some of this sometimes in my daughter. She's, I think, learning sooner. But I've got one daughter um, like me, and she has that tendency as well to glom on to some of the unhealthy people. Mm-hmm. So it, but hopefully, you know, we're going to learn younger and younger <laughs> with my family generation as we work through this. And that's where we're supposed to help the younger generation to break the cycle. We have to see the cycle in ourselves first. And mm-hmm. then I think that's what that scripture means is like the sins of the father are passed down because anything unresolved in us is going to be passed down most likely. And that, um, as we're talking about this, that goes right into what um, is called the trauma survivor blueprint. But I can briefly go through the stages. So stage one is an event occurs that contradicts your expectations, beliefs, value, personal identity, and you immediately experience loss. And so, you know, this could be, um, I mentioned I work with adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So an event is, you know, someone who you trust because that's most of the cases all of a sudden turns on you and does something inappropriate. And that is a contradiction and a child doesn't necessarily know how to handle that. Um, But their brain has just been shocked to find out this person they trusted, who they felt safe with has done something terrible to them. And that creates a huge trauma in the brain and the limbic system. The stage two is the limbic system is triggered. So they go into fight flight, freeze, or fawn. What is the limbic system? So that's that um, survivor, like those responses where you have adrenaline response, like fight, flight, or freeze. A lot of the clients I know, they tend to freeze. That was there. A lot of kids don't necessarily fight, even though that might be a good response. They're in a trusting situation. So that's, I don't know any personally that have gone to that response but it's that adrenaline response and that's where you know your heart rates up your digestive system shuts down um, you're just ready for you're protecting yourself and what happens is so stage three is the grief response begins and it's either processed and resolved and the event is moved into history or the grief response begins it's not resolved information is stored and the cycle moves into um, stage four, which is the brain rallying to survive, activating new survival responses. So stage three, for a big um, traumatic event like that, that doesn't mean it's going to be processed and resolved immediately. Mm -hmm. It's going to take time. And a lot of times in childhood, they don't tell anybody until they're older. You know, if they were to go share this with their parents or someone who did help them in a healthy way, 
then maybe it's probably something they would have to process again as an adult because as a child, they can be given healthy tools, but different stages of life, you experience loss differently. That makes um, sense. Like my friend who's adopted, we've talked about how she's working through it now, but probably is going to have to work through it again when she has a child because she doesn't have that experience yet. And then, but that's probably going to bring up more stuff, just knowing what that experience is like. So sometimes these are ongoing, but if you are given healthy tools, if you're given support, it will be um, more likely to be able to be processed faster and not as negatively affect your life as when you just leave it there and go into the next um, cycle, which is an ongoing, you create new survival responses. And then a lot of times those are things that, again, contradict your expectations and beliefs. So maybe you start cutting yourself or you start drinking or using drugs. And then you also then feel guilty about doing that. And then you feel guilty, so you go and do something else. So it, it's this ongoing cycle. Compounds, and, more complications, and yeah. Right, and it continues to trigger that fight, flight, or freeze, and it creates more emotion associated with loss and grief, and it just goes around and around and tends to get worse. And that's where, like, if you know someone who's struggled with addiction or something, you know, nobody... Is like, oh, I want to be a drug addict when I grow up. Right. You know, nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. Nobody chooses that path on purpose. But it's, it's this cycle that things just get worse and worse. Ongoing, unresolved trauma is the result when you keep cycling through this loop, developing more survival responses through behaviors, thoughts, attitudes, on top of the previous survival responses, they contradict who you think you are, but eventually you begin to believe that you are those survival responses. And that's where it becomes, it changes your identity in a negative way. And other people begin to believe that about you too. Right. This starts, I can relate to this in the sense that we talk about this just in general in life coaching is like when we get stuck it's very easy for us to be in tune with and aware of our feelings, but we don't often connect it to the thought that created the feeling so that the thoughts are kind of quiet, but the feeling, the body feels it. And we're, we're because the body's pretty loud when it speaks to us. So the body language will feel it in our stomach. We'll feel it in our chest or whatever, but then, you know, it's trying to get our attention to say, Hey, you just had a thought that needs to be adjusted or it needs to be dealt with or it's kind of giving you a red flag. Maybe you're in a place that's dangerous and you're not paying attention or whatever, but we don't often listen to the feelings. So then we get stuck in, I mean, we don't often listen to the thoughts or connect there, but we're always most of the time aware of our feelings that's been triggered. And then, so it sounds like this loop right here is where we get stuck in our feelings and then in our identity, we change our identity to match our feelings and so the, we're so addicted to the feelings themselves, and we just say to ourselves, well, that's who I am. That's how I'm wired. This is, this is who I am. And so mm -hmm. then we, we merge into becoming this person that is overwhelmed, full of anxiety, easily triggered, all those things that we tell ourselves every day. And then it feels like when you get stuck in the feelings right there, and you're looping, and you're looping, and you're ruminating, is that then 
instead of having a thought that triggers, your feelings are telling your thoughts how to justify the feelings. So now like every day you wake up and you're so addicted to feeling overwhelmed and anxiety and unsafe and the flight or fight triggers that you're looking for justification. You're looking for thoughts and beliefs that justify those feelings. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's, I, I can relate to that personally. That was one of the things that we worked through um, in my coaching early with my first coach and getting stuck in that identity loop that's not true. That's where we lose our authentic self mm-hmm. to becoming what our feelings tell us we are. Right. And it's, it's hard to get off that bus, <laughs> you know, we, and it doesn't feel good. That's the other thing is when you've developed this, especially like if this has been going on since your childhood and maybe you've been doing this pattern for 20 years or 30 years, however long, to do something different doesn't feel good. And your body fights against it. And your brain is like, no, this is unsafe. <laughs> you're, what you're used to is your body and your body's doing the best it can to try to keep you safe, even though it's hurting you, but it's hard to shift your brain to do, to create healthy responses. Not impossible. You know, we, there's so much neuroscience now that says we can change the pathways in our brain. We can um, lose those unhealthy habits and create healthier ones. And it actually changes the structure in our brain. So it's possible, but it's not easy. It's not easy, but you know what I always, I find really fascinating is your brain in that first phase of like considering change or considering doing something new or considering coaching or therapy of any kind is it seems like it's an endeavor that cannot be, it's a mountain that can't be climbed or it's just too much, too long, too high, too all the things. But I think it's really fascinating that the brain is so powerful that when you step into and you press into those fears and you step into those taking that action of changing, so much can change in 30 days. And you can be a completely different person in 90 days. Yes. That's what it blows my mind when you get in alignment with the way your the original wiring that God made you to have. When you start walking back towards that, and you start getting into alignment with that, how fast things can change. Not easy, but it happens really fast when you press in. Yes. And one of the other programs I've done, Positive Intelligence, is all about creating new neural pathways in your brain through little simple exercises. Like, I think we've talked about this, rubbing two fingers together, breathing exercises. Like 12 minutes a day, they've done studies with CAT scans. And in eight weeks, they've seen changes in the brain of people who have consistently done these exercises for just eight weeks. We terribly underestimate the power of the brain. Yes. So it is possible to really make a difference. Now, obviously, a a large traumatic event is going to take longer than eight weeks, but you can see some positive changes in that amount of time if you stay consistent. It doesn't take forever to see some movement in the right direction but it it's a neat how our brains are so powerful and created to do amazing things and created to heal we are capable of healing from all this stuff that is so painful in our lives and 
And what the last step in that um, blueprint I wanted to share, because this is what made me think of it, is that if, if it's still not resolved, those um, responses and habits and things are passed on to the next generation. They're taught to the next generation. And so that's what I tell my parents, no matter how old your kids are, the best thing we can do for our kids is to get healthy ourselves because that's how we're going to impact the next generation. And our kids are, you know, nobody is going to go through life without struggle. But if we can just continue to get a little healthier um, each generation, maybe we can impact our children and grandchildren. Now, like I even I said, like my mom was probably in her 40s when she started to get healthy. I was in my 30. I was like 30, early 30s. My daughter, maybe early 20s. You know, it's... <laughs> The goal is to make it a little earlier each time. Yeah. And literally um, change the family tree. Yeah. For the better, hopefully. You know, that's our goal. Yeah. <laughs> but it starts with me. You know, I can't, I can't try to make someone else in my family better and not care about what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And it's, and it, I think we all need motivation that's outside of us to do the hardest of the hard things. Uh, I, a lot of times we're just not, we're not going to do that just for our own good. But when we have somebody like our sons or daughters that are looking at us to make a better way or to, to lead in a better way or to guide or show them a better path, that is way more motivating than just doing it for my own peace, joy, happiness. You know, I think it's, it goes so much deeper when you can see it as a, seeds of generational change and generational curses being broken and people really I mean it's the give them wings and in order to give them wings we actually have to get the wings first mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the better we are at flying the better they will be yeah we have to do the work first which is not always the way we want to do it <laughs> I know we want to do want... the whole don't do as I do do as I say thing yes. <laughs> And that work. does not work. It doesn't work. They know better. Yeah. Whatever you think you're hiding, it doesn't, it comes out. Yeah. They can see it. And uh, yeah, I, so the star therapy, I'll just say this real quick and then we can go into um, our little demo, but it has three stages. And the first one is establishing safety and stabilization. And that's really about just building trust in the relationship and getting that person to a place where they're stable and ready to take the next step, which is the reprocessing and grieving. And that's the hard part. That's the part where it's looking at the incidents and the events and really going through the grief process that has been avoided <laughs> for fear of the pain of what that's going to be. And one of the things I wanted to say is part of the avoidance of it is the fear of like, I'm just not going to be able to handle this. It's going to be too hard. It's not worth it. I'd rather just sort of live a medi mediocre life than deal with this pain and go back there. The problem is it's always there because it's stored in the present tense until we go through the grieving process to move it into history. The reason it's so helpful to have um, a coach, therapist, somebody to walk alongside you is you're not going through it alone. It's a step-by-step -step process. You have support, help. We move it at your pace. Like I, 
client I'm working with, I'm like, look, I'm going to keep challenging you to keep moving forward. But if you have a, need a break, that's okay. You know, we can take a break, not too many breaks, but we just have to find the pace that works for you to work through this. And my job is to keep you moving, but I also am not here to just push you beyond what you can handle in this moment either. So it's finding that ground and knowing that you're not doing it alone. That's such a big piece. And I also, I shared um, in the last podcast, but I encourage um, the adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse to also find the support groups with Sapria and go use the resources they offer because the more support that you have working through something, the, I don't want to say easier, it's going to be hard going through it, but the more support and knowing you're not alone and being with people who understand what you're going through, that just helps continue, helps you to be encouraged and to continue the process when it does feel overwhelming and it will. Um, So it may not be easier, but the more support you have makes it less dreadful. Yes. Maybe that's a good way to put it. I can't say easier because it's not easy. It's probably going to be some of the hardest work you ever do going through, you know, any of this work for any kind of big trauma is just going to be hard. Um, There is a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) There's joy and freedom and hope on the other side. And that's, that's what I love to see is people finding that space. I think that might be abstract for a lot of people and that's why they might stay the same rather than trying something different is realizing what is on the other side of facing all of it. What is Mm -hmm. when you step into it and what does healing get you to? Like what could life be if you actually healed some of those wounds? I think that's so abstract. Can you go into that a little bit more just from the experiences that you've observed? Yeah, and I would say from my own experience, like let's say in Al-Anon, walking into those doors is a completely broken, miserable person with no hope, really. And being in the room where there are some people about where I was, but people who had been there for years, and they're smiling and laughing, and their situation is similar to mine or was. Like there's being in that kind of a group was probably the most powerful piece of it. And that's the same thing like in AA, you know, you've got people that walk in there just a mess, but they see these other men and women who have found not only sobriety, but like happiness and abundant life and joy without drinking. That almost seems impossible at times. And I remember talking to a friend and them saying, you know, I know I can't drink anymore, but I'm just not going to drink and have a miserable life because they didn't think they could enjoy life without drinking and they're like that was the biggest gift was actually finding that I could enjoy life without drinking they didn't see that as possible but once they really got into the program they found even a better life than what they had before that's why I think the support group piece is so important where like with Sapria and we hope to have an interview with um, some people who work there maybe in November I think but I'm still working on setting that up, but we're definitely going to do it at some point in the next month or two. But seeing other people who have been where you are, and that's the um, organization that helps adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, and there really is a hard, it's hard to see past that 
and how you could actually enjoy life. But there are people in there who've who have healed to a, a you know a further degree who have gone through and who are helping others because they and that's part of the healing process too is when you finally find that hope and healing and that's why I do what I do I have been in that mess and I think I know you would say this too found hope and healing and purpose in life and I'm like I want to share that with others because I've been there and it sucked and I'm here and it doesn't mean I don't go through hard times, but I know how to find the support I need. I know how, I know where to get the resources to help me get through them. I'm not going to get through them alone (laughs) either. And that's part of the process is knowing, okay, I need help and where can I find it? That's such a big piece of it is finding a community. That's the word of people, even with um, going through the divorce and working with other women who've gone through it I'm sure when you are with a group of women who've been through that and are healthy that's uplifting for you it is because I think what happens is we're almost like to give an analogy I think a little bit of what we do is kind of like um, a medic in the military you know these wounded soldiers come in and a lot of them need just a little bit of reworking and then we send them back out to go do the job, right? And I think that that's kind of what we see is that these are wounded people that come in and the ultimate goal is not that you would go back to war, but that you would go back to life, that we would help you, guide you into that place of becoming whole again, seeing yourself in the real you, not the the you that's convinced yourself that life cannot be better than what you have, but the real you that has gifts and talents and creativity and an overflow of love and light to give, because that's the snuffing out of the life here. I mean, there's a, there's definitely a dark and light force that's coming against us. And when you see that people have been snuffed out, their light is being stuffed back in. I kind of feel like they're the wounded soldier walking in and we're just going to try to start pulling back the layers of stuff that's covered up their light and send them back out because somebody that does get freed up is, is somebody that's going to go overflow no matter whether you come. I mean, not everybody's going to become a coach, but to go back into your home feeling whole and overflow that to your children and your husband or your Uh, your community in some way or your career in some way. I mean, being able to send somebody out more whole than they came in is the ultimate goal just so, because the world needs more light (laughs) and love and people that are whole and courageous and brave enough to love. And we think that it's, um, I mean, it's dangerous to love. And Renee Brown talks about the vulnerability thing. That's what we do. The first thing that that gets damaged in our identity is we got to survive by not showing our vulnerability, not risking love again. I mean, I'm raising my hand saying that's me. That's me. But if we Mm -hmm. can get to a place where we go, no, no, the really courageous, the ones that are really built for the battle that's out here are the ones that are going to go back out and be vulnerable. The ones that are going to go back out and risk with love and risk with kindness and risk being hurt again. Yeah. And if you're full enough and you know where to find, if your identity is strong and what God says about you, you know, then that risk of getting hurt again is not as big because we know who we are 
not to say that we won't get hurt. I will get hurt. <laughs> Relationships are really important to me. So people can hurt me. But I also can know that that's, I can find wholeness again, too. I can, once I get to a place where I can think through it, process it in a healthy way, then I can be whole again. And I, I agree. I think that's, I love that. It is, it's about helping, you know, the people who come in wounded get whole again to go back out. And it's not a forever, like you shared um, in your program, the goal is to work ourselves out of a job. Yeah, I don't want to be in your life telling you how to do every step of your life. I want to teach you the tools that are going to help you do life mm -hmm. in a much more effective way and in a much more enjoyable way. And what you're right. just saying about, you know, we are going to get hurt. Our expectations are going to be, <laughs> we're going to get disappointed. But the more whole we are, the faster we're going to see the brokenness in somebody else. And, and our grace is going to be more effective than our um, being able to just defend ourselves. We won't feel like we automatically have to defend ourselves when we can recognize it because we've seen it, we've been it, we've healed it. Now we can go be vulnerable and identify their cracks in their foundation is how we used it in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. And that is true. If someone is hurting me, oftentimes it has a lot more to do with them than it does me. And I'm the same. If I'm you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, if I'm run down and I lash out and hurt someone else, chances are it's not about them <laughs> as much as it is about me. Right. So we're going to go through just a little demonstration on processing an event. And this is a great tool to use with a friend or your children or someone that is similar to what we do in star therapy. We would do it on a, a larger scale and a more um, detailed scale going through many things. But this is a great tool just if your child comes home from school and is like, this happened. This is a great way to walk them through that process. So we're going to actually use an example from Debbie's past of a big event that happened in her life. And just this would probably take a little bit more to process, but this will give you an idea of what it's like to go through this scenario in a way that would be a healthy way to walk someone through if you're in a conversation uh, with someone who's struggling with an event or something that happened. Okay. So yeah, when I was in high school, I got really close to this person. Uh, his name was Jack and we were really, really close friends and we spent a great deal of time together. We worked together. We went to school together. We hung out together. And um, shortly after we graduated, um, it was actually in November after my graduation of June. So I was still 18. Um, I went into work and my boss had to tell me that Jack passed away because he was due there that morning. And I went in and I was like, isn't Jack on the schedule? He's not here. And so it was kind of this abrupt smack in the face with absolutely the worst case scenario. Didn't see that coming at all. Uh, it turns out that a mutual friend of ours, it was his roommate who he was living with at the time, actually killed him. And wow. it was a um, it was a situation where justice was not served. Uh, his roommate was not, it, it wasn't proven. So it was just this um, unresolved, open 
case that just didn't seem to be handled properly. And uh, I was only 18. Wow. That is, I can't imagine. That's tough. What did you feel when that happened? When you got that news? I think, uh, I mean, I can remember where I was and I can remember the, the feeling. Um, my boss was not much older than me. So um, I think the weight of him having to tell me was very difficult for him. And I remember his face first and reading his expression that, uh, you know, there's the body cues that something terrible had happened. And when he said it, it was so shocking that I couldn't believe it. And I dismissed what he said. And I walked out back where the employees parked. I was working at Michael's Arts and Crafts. And I walked out back thinking that it absolutely cannot be true. I'm just going to wait until Jack pulls up. This is a terrible joke. Or I was trying to figure it out. And nothing in my brain was accepting what he had told me. So let me ask you again, what did you feel when that happened? Uh, I mean, I don't know that shock is a feeling, but I think that that's what is a shutdown. I probably just, I think I just shut down. Like I didn't get emotional. I didn't cry. Mm -hmm. I think that was, I think I would have felt shocked. I didn't cry for a long time. I don't think I cried until his funeral. I, mm -hmm. I think I just, um, I just shut down. I couldn't feel mm -hmm. anything or I refused to. I'm not sure if it was a choice or automatic. I think I would have felt disbelief and shock and denial. I don't know if that's a feeling either, but I, I feel like I would not have felt it was real or really happening. It was definitely denial. I kept, I, my actions were definitely in denial. I mean, I was still going through the motions of expecting him to pull in the parking lot and setting myself there. Like if I just sit here and look down the road, he's going to drive up. <laughs> like I can will this to happen. He's not, that's not true. He's not dead. I'm just going to will that to not be true. Yeah. What do you wish had happened? Or, you know, as you found out that news, how do you wish it had been delivered to you? Or what could have helped you in that moment? It was so unexpected. I don't know that there was, you know, not changing the reality of what had happened. Um, I think I would have preferred getting the information from somebody closer and not being broadsided. Um, you know, if I were at home before I got to work or just maybe even from his mom, I think that I would have preferred that. to be able to process it. I think it was hard the way it hit me at work with my boss. Like if his mom had said, had called me and said this terrible thing happened, it would have been easier to believe. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't think I would have delayed the denial as, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have had the denial as long as I had it. Yeah. What do you think you lost because that happened the way it did? Um, probably, probably just being um, brave enough to feel it. It's okay. It's part of the process. I think I got real comfortable in shutting down. It was so safe to be able to do that. Yeah. I don't know if I learned that before that or if that is when I learned it, but um, that became my automatic response to disconnect from my emotions. What are you feeling about experiencing those losses? Sad. That's really sad. That I can't feel things and I go numb so easily. And I wonder how much, how much have I actually missed by not being able to stay present in the moment or feel the things. Like the real feelings and process them. Like how much have I missed? Because not everything's good, you know. And if I shut down every time something's uncomfortable, <clears throat> how present can I be in the moment? You know, whether it's being present for somebody else or my my kids, or even showing them how to be brave and stay connected. I feel sad and upset. I can I can feel um, that hurt and loss. What are you feeling? Shock. <laughs> Again, I'm kind of surprised. That was so long ago. I'm 50 years old, and that was when I was 18. I'm kind of surprised that um, I didn't expect to get emotional. So um, to have it affect me like that, and I haven't revisited those experiences, um, I don't even know because I just block stuff out. And to go back and put myself in that, um, in that place, in that time, the memories are pretty vivid. I didn't think that they would be so vivid. And I'm kind of, uh, I mean, I'm sad to think, you know, when I was 18, that happened. And I can think of pretty key emotional events that have happened since then that I respond in exactly the same way. I responded the same way when my brother passed away in 2019, and I, ex I did the same thing when my mom passed away. I mean, I don't think I showed emotion either time for months, and there's moments, and I think it's more <laughs> hormonally driven, that I grieve my mom in an emotional way, and I let it flow. And, you know, it's funny because people will see that as strength. How many times I've been called strong because I'm emotionless. Mm. I don't want to be called strong anymore because that's not what that is. I want to affirm just your vulnerability and your willingness to talk about this and your bravery because it's not easy to be put on the spot like this and share something like this.
thank you for sharing this with me. I want to say thank you, but gosh, that just stirred up a whole lot. So we're going to have to have another session. (laughs) (laughs) You matter and what happened mattered and Jack mattered. And I think just even learning to process this now is such a, a gift to yourself. It is. And so this is really just a simplified kind of way of how I go through events with clients. But the key parts are talking about the feelings, the the, the should-haves. <laughs> you know, generally we don't like to focus on those, but sometimes when you're talking about a past event like this, the trauma is because something that should have happened a different way and it didn't and it created a loss. And had you maybe spoken to his mom and been able to just sort of hug and cry with her and experience that differently, you know, maybe it wouldn't have created the losses and the numbness. Maybe, you know, it's, we don't know, but helping to think through that is a way of processing this event. And, um, and I, I did think you might cry, (laughs) but I also know how this works. And that's part of the, the program is to really help you grieve. And part of grief is sadness. I can't believe how long you can hold on to something like that. Just pack it all away. Yeah. And it could be so quiet. It's, it's there until you process it. Are you feeling? Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm excited because I know what the process is. And so it's kind of exciting to think that I could free my body up from holding that in and to Mm -hmm. reframe it and to go back and experience it. Like just, I feel really good about thinking about that would have made all the difference in the world to see his mom's pain and to see her grieve. I didn't see that for a week. And then his mom and I spent a lot of time together after that, but I had a, a whole week of just packing it in and numbing out and, Um, I think that that would have made all the difference in the world. So the idea of just going back and thinking about that and, and and how healing that would have been even right at the beginning of the trauma to witness another female expressing her grief would have been so helpful. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, I'm excited to think about that because it does, um, does just breathe hope into it I just didn't even realize that this was still affecting me and in thinking about that when you do experience because sadly chances are you'll experience a loss again how could you handle that differently or how could you be there for someone who has experienced a loss in both seats if I was the one to experience the loss, like the same scenario as with Jack, I think I would seek out other being around others that loved that person that much, you know, Mm -hmm. that could relate. Like I would, I think that that would be very important to just immediately, as soon as possible, be around those other people that feel the same way you do. Yeah. I think if I was on the other side of the fence, if I were like my boss in that scenario, I think that, um, I mean, it would have been awkward because it was my boss, but I think that um, 
in the moment, I would want to go there emotionally with that person, like knowing that this was going to break them. I would want to go there and cry with them. Mm -hmm. I think that would be really helpful. I'm picturing, and maybe I'll post this after we release this episode, but Brene Brown has this cute little cartoon about empathy versus sympathy. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't. But one of the parts is, it's like animals. And so this one animal, I can't remember what it is, is sad. And the he's like down in a pit because he's sad down there. And the bear climbs down with him. But what he does is he, the sad animal has like a little gray cloud over his head. The bear ends up having to connect with something in him that makes him sad. So he has a gray cloud over his head, but that enables him to just sit with the other animal in his pain, which is what empathy is. And then there's like this um, gazelle or something that peeks down and it's like, you want a sandwich? <laughs> which is doesn't, doesn't come down in the pit and just tries to offer something that's sort of meaningless to make <laughs> them feel better so that there's no more sadness, which is more of the sympathy, like, let's just fix it and get it over with. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes me think of that, like, that would be true empathy, kind of allowing yourself to feel the pain with them. And that would be helpful. I could see why now. Yeah. And uh, even though that's not a fun thing to do, that's a helpful thing to do. Well, we just want to thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope you found some helpful nuggets in here to just share. I don't think I actually got through the three pieces of the STAR therapy, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, explain or share those again. The first step is, the first phase is safety and stabilization. The second is reprocessing and grieving, which is going through a process similar to what we just did but a little bit more involved. And then the third phase is reconnecting and integrating. And that's really, once you've gone through the healing process, how then do you reconnect and create healthy relationships? So that's the exciting phase to get to. And um, we just thank you for listening. I hope uh, if you are more interested in this, you can listen to or learning more about this you can listen to my sally's coaching program episode that was a week or two ago and we look forward to just serving you as much as we can in the future so until next time stay wild if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave us a review Let us know what you liked and what your main takeaways were. We'd also love to know what topics you'd want to hear about on future episodes. To connect with us further on social media or to learn more about our services, click on the links in the show notes or email us at womenofwildpodcast at gmail.com. And if you know anyone that would benefit from hearing this episode, please share it. To continue the discussion about this episode, join us in our private Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. Until next week. Stay wild.